Thank you so much for being a part of this service. This is our normal Wednesday night service. We've been going through some passages in the Psalms, and we're in a longer one now, so we're kind of breaking it down into chunks according to the various stanzas that will be a part of this. It's kind of hard to imagine. You take something like Psalm 78. That was a song that they would sing. We don't know the tune, and it's rather long, but we're going to break it down and take it piece by piece. Because as Asaph has been concerned with passing on our faith to our children so that it's more than just a ritual or it's more than just a cultural tradition that they can choose to ignore if they want to, uh, this is something that needs to be real. He's aiming for their heart. And he's telling us that we need to tell certain things to our children, but they can't be just hypocritical, empty platitudes. They've got to come from our heart. And we've talked about that. And he uses the children of Israel in the wilderness as an example. In fact, the Apostle Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he tells us that these things, and he references the wilderness time of Israel coming out of Egypt, that it is an admonition. An admonition means a warning, a warning to us that we should not be like them. And so sometimes we can learn, of course, from the negative of other people. It would be better if we could learn from the positive, but sometimes even the negative in our lives can be a pretty good instructor. And so as Asaph is writing these things down and reminding the people uh, of his day what their ancestors were like, this is where we kind of come in and we learn from the past as well. Now, during the wilderness times, you understand that the people were up and down and on and off and Sometimes they were really in tune with God and other times they were about as far away as they could ever get. They were basically characterized by times of unfaithfulness and then whenever tragedy would hit, they would you know, kind of turn it on and then as soon as the pressure was off, they would go back to normal. Our generation does that as well, don't we? The, the Bible says in Proverbs... Um, chapter 20, verse 25, it is a snare to say rashly, quote, it is holy, unquote, and then to reflect only after making vows. Have you ever done that? Sometimes we sing some things that we don't really think about. I surrender all, for example, and then we get upset when God takes something from us or God doesn't open a door that we want to open. It's easy for us to say, well, God is in control until it affects our lives in what we consider to be a negative way. Then we question the sovereignty and the goodness and the mercy of God. We're just kind of wired that way. There's an old story about a preacher. Maybe he was preaching a revival meeting, but he is preaching away and there's a farmer. Farmer Jones is sitting on the front row. And the preacher said, Farmer Jones, if you had two farms, would you give one to the Lord? And Farmer Jones says, Amen. And he said, Farmer Jones, if you had two tractors, would you give one to the Lord? And he said, Amen. And he said, Farmer Jones, if you had two hogs, would you give one to the Lord? Farmer Jones squirmed a little bit and he said, You know I have two hogs. And that's kind of the way it is for a lot of us. We're willing to give what we really don't think is going to be required. We're willing to make commitments on something until it really comes to the point of doing it. 
And so we say, like Solomon warned us against, it's holy, it belongs to the Lord, all to Jesus I surrender, until he actually comes to the point of wanting something that we actually have. Well, that's kind of the way the children of Israel were, and we're going to see it in this particular passage. The insincerity of their life is just so glaring when we look at it. But like them, we don't always see it when it's in our own life and in our own heart. And this is one of the reasons, I think, that children don't carry on the faith of their fathers because they never saw it as being real. They never saw it as being worth anything. Whenever we serve God out of the leftovers, out of the things that are just casual, whenever we do what David warned uh, or what David was not willing to do, you remember he wanted to buy a vineyard so he could sacrifice to the Lord. And when the owner of the vineyard found out it was for the Lord, he said, I'll just give it to you. And David made this statement. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And I wonder if maybe we're not making the impact on upcoming generations because Christianity has become so casual and so convenient and it doesn't really cost anything. And they don't see it as being valuable in our lives, so why should they value it? In fact, whatever value we do put on Christianity, you can be sure they will probably have a tendency to value it a little bit less. So we need to set the bar high, don't we? So let's read this particular passage, and we're in Psalm 78. We'll start at verse 33, and we'll go to verse 39. Now, you remember last week we talked about how God deals with a stubborn and prideful generation, and it picks up now in verse 39 saying, In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. That's a great way to live, isn't it? Verse 34, When he slew them, well, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. And nevertheless, this is kind of awful to think about, they flattered Him with their mouth and they lied to Him with their tongue for their heart was not steadfast with them. Nor were they faithful in His covenant but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up, this is interesting, all his wrath. I mean, there were some, but if you think God is wrathful, you haven't seen anything, anything yet, is what the writer is saying here. Verse 39, For he remembered that they were flesh, in breath that passes away and does not come again. He knew their weakness, he knew their frailties, he knew their limitations, just as he knows ours, right? And so as we think about this uh, generation and the way that they lived, surely we wouldn't do anything like this. Surely we would learn from the things we've seen in life and we've seen in our ancestors and the things that we've learned from the Bible. I mean, aren't we smarter than these other people? Well, in a sense, we sure should be, shouldn't we? 
I mean, we've got thousands of years of biblical history. We've got thousands of years of instruction. Not only that, but we have examples all around us. People that we can look to and people that we can uh, get advice from and people that are more than willing to help us along the way. But so many times we try to make it on our own and we think that we're smart enough, that we're sufficient enough, adequate enough to handle things. And, you know, we really show our stupidity in that, don't we? The old saying, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, we're kind of living that in so many ways now. We've got to be smarter than that. And so what do we need to learn ourselves before we can really impact another generation? Well, the first thing that I noticed out of these verses, did you know and have you considered that sin is actually a matter of faith or lack of faith or belief or unbelief? The Bible tells us in these verses that even though God dealt with them, they still sinned because they really did not believe the works of God. And we talked about this last week. Sure, He can part the Red Sea, but how is He going to give us food to eat? Where are we going to get water in the desert? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Remember that? And so we do the same thing. Yes, we have great stories about how God carried us through or God provided a need, and then we panic whenever another need arises. It's human nature to do that because at the point of sin, you have a choice to either believe God and His Word or to not believe God. We don't always see it that way, do we? But the Bible says that we're never tempted above what we're able to bear and that there's always a way of escape. But we don't take the way of escape because we really don't see it as being all that sinful and we don't see the sin, even if we acknowledge it as sin, as being all that harmful. I can control it. I can handle it. I'll get out of this. It'll be okay. I had one person in our church tell me one time when I confronted them, about a, a very sinful situation, they said, it'll be okay, I'll just do my warfare, and then everything will be fine. What a horrible, horrible way to approach life. And so the children of Israel were kind of like that. They still were sinning, and they were still going on their own way because they really didn't believe God. And that's why the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to, uh, in verse 16, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Because every temptation boils down to this. Do I believe God or not? And when I believe what God says, then I don't sin. But when I don't believe God, then I fall into sin. And the fiery darts are not quenched. It really does come down to faith. And the Bible also tells us, the Apostle John said, This is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. Do you really believe God? Not just in God, but believe God, what He says, what He does, who He is, and what His Word has to say. My father-in-law gave me a Bible one time and he wrote in it, this book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. How true is that? And that really is what it boils down to. Number two, let's uh, consider the fact that as Asaph is writing this, he tells them something that is, well, I think this is kind of a male thing. I'm sure women sort of experience it too, but I know men do. 
we have a fear, a big fear in our life, and that's a fear of failure and insignificance. Failure and insignificance. I don't want to fail in what I do, and so I tend to avoid the things I might fail at, and I really, really am fearful that my life might end up coming to an end, as all of our lives do, but living really for nothing and having accomplished nothing and not really mattering. Well, I want you to notice how sin is what is uh, the thing that robs us of, uh, of anything significant in our lives. It causes us to waste our time, to waste our life, to waste our money, to waste our talents, to waste everything that we have. And that's when life becomes like a vapor. When James wrote that, he wasn't just speaking of the brevity of life. He was talking about people that made no provision for the will of God in their life, and so there was nothing that remained. I hope my life is more than a vapor. I know it'll be brief like a vapor, but I hope that when it is all over, there are things that I have said and preached, things that I have lived and things that I have imparted to other people, especially to my children and grandchildren, that will live on after I'm gone. I don't want it just to disappear and be a big nothing. That's terrifying to me. Well, here's what Asaph said. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. Futility and fear. You see, when you are afraid, you don't make good decisions. Nobody makes good decisions in a panicky situation. You usually mess up. You usually do the wrong thing. You usually do the wrong thing for the wrong reasons because fear and faith don't really coexist, do they? And so the people in the wilderness, everything they did was out of fear. What if there's not enough bread? What if we never have meat again? What if Moses brought us out here to die? What if we don't have enough water? What if, what if, what if? And they were scared to death. And so their lives basically were lived in fear and came to, as Asaph says, futility. This is a generation that came out of Egypt. They saw the Passover. They saw the death angel strike the Egyptians. They were taken through the Red Sea. They were shown the destruction of the armies of Egypt. They ate manna, angel's food, remember it was called. They saw water gushing out of the rock. They saw the Lord provide for them quail when they were craving meat but they never entered the promised land. Only two did, Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses entered the promised land. Why? This was what we might call a generation that wasted, they wasted their life. And the only thing we really learn from this first generation is how not to do it. Oh, folks, please, please, I'm begging you, don't live your life so your children just look at you and find out what not to do. Let's do something with our life and do something positive so that we don't end up, because of sin, having a life that was a life of futility. It was just empty. It was just a puff of smoke. It was just a little bit of vapor in the wind and now it's gone and there was nothing left behind and nothing significant. Live in the will of God. Live for the glory of God. Live in faith and live in obedience and uh, not in fear. Isn't it interesting that in Genesis chapter 3, whenever Adam sinned, the first thing he did was try to cover himself, fig leaves, and then he tried to hide. And when God came into the garden manifesting his presence and he was saying, Adam, where are you? 
as if God didn't know. He wanted Adam to fess up, as we might say. And when God said, Why are you hiding? Here was Adam's words. Look what happened in Genesis 3, 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. No longer was he covered by the glory of God. No longer was he comfortable in God's presence. No longer did he feel assurance, acceptance, and security in the presence of God. Now everything, everything has changed in Adam's life. And what is he doing? He tries to cover himself with his own human effort, which is never good enough. And he tries to hide, and you can't hide from an all-knowing, all-seeing God, can you? And Adam does that because he is afraid. And the fear drives him to do exactly the wrong thing. You see, when he ate the fruit, he didn't believe God. Go back to what we said in point number one. And then when the consequences of that hit him, then he reacted in fear and he did exactly the wrong thing. That was the time after he ate that he should have been looking for God. He should have been crying out to God. He should have been seeking the Lord. But like all of us, when we're in sin, our tendency is to run from God, to cover up and hide, to try to be something that we're not, to pretend that everything's okay. It's a horrible, horrible way to live. That's why Solomon said in the book of Proverbs that he who covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes their sin will find mercy. God is a merciful, merciful and forgiving God. Thirdly, these verses tell us something about us that really, really is unfortunate. You know this? Tragedy, not love, gets our attention. You know, I can talk to you about the love of God till I'm blue in the face. We can sing about the love of God until we have nothing else to sing. I always think it's funny. Sometimes we are singing that song, I could sing of your love forever. And uh, then after a while we're going, how many times are we going to say that? Uh, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because the love of God sometimes gets our attention, but most of the time not. You see, if we really knew the love of God and really believed and really rested in the love of God, if we really understood the love of God, we would never stray from God. The problem is the love of God makes us kind of yawn. The love of God is like, yeah, okay. I saw a t-shirt one time. It says, Jesus loves you. And on the back it says, but then again, he loves everybody. And what was that saying? The, the fact of God's love is sort of wasted on us because it seems to be no big deal. God is love, no big deal. Then he ought to love me, and then, you know, what do I have anything to worry about then? Well, we don't see God as being holy, do we? And we don't see him as having a standard, and we don't see the love of God the way we really ought to. It's not just that God has warm, fuzzy feelings for us. It's that God sent his Son to be butchered on a cross to bear the wrath of God that we would have borne in hell. And why did he do that? Because of his great love toward us. And because we don't really see it like that, God sometimes has to get our attention. Go back to these people in the wilderness. They had been set free from the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time, Pharaoh. They had been uh, able to walk through the Red Sea 
with the waters piled up in a heap on both sides, and they walked over on dry land, and then they saw Pharaoh's army destroyed trying to do the same thing. Now, wouldn't you think that those people would say, a God who does that must love us with a great, a great love. And wouldn't you think that understanding and seeing the love of God might have caused them to say, I'm going to serve you. You remember the old song that says, I will serve you because I love you. You have given life to me. Wouldn't it be nice if that's the way it was? Well, it ought to be. It ought to be that way. But the tragedy is that we are more impressed by tragedy than we are by the love of God. You see, these people, whenever it says that God slew them, you think about people dying all around you. You think about how people will react whenever uh, we talked about this Sunday night at our drive-in service. You have a Pearl Harbor or you have a 9-11 and people are killed and we're terrified or maybe there's a plague, some kind of a disease and all of a sudden people want to have a prayer service or they want to do something religious or they want to go to church or they want to try to connect. And hopefully through all of that, people will do that and they'll come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord through His grace. But more often than not, what happens? We're stirred, but we're not changed. We are afraid, but then after the pressure is off, we go right back to the norm. Well, that's exactly what was happening here. They weren't seeing the love and the provision and the mercy and the miracle-working power of God. They were kind of saying, well, what has He done for me lately? Why should I really serve Him? Why should I believe Him? Maybe this isn't going to work out after all. Maybe there is no promised land. Maybe Moses has just led us out here to die. Remember all those times they would say that? And they would act deprived even though God was taking care of them. Oh, wasn't it great back in Egypt? Think about everything we had to eat back in Egypt. And I just read that and I go, that can't be right. Because people didn't tend to slay, feed slaves any more than they had to, to keep them alive and to keep them just strong enough to work. They didn't really care whether they lived or died or whether they were healthy or not, and they didn't want to put too much money into their uh, investments. They just wanted them to be able to work. And the futility of life, you remember back in Egypt, the Bible says, God heard their groanings. He didn't hear them with their uh, full bellies and uh, the delight that they had of all of the fun times and the good food in Egypt. We tend to kind of romanticize the past and we really shouldn't do that because we're like them. What is it that really gets your attention about God? And I'll say this about you and I'll say this about me. I'll say this about them. There is something wrong with us, bad wrong with us, when the love of God doesn't really move us to serve God but tragedy all of a sudden gets our attention. Then we're interested in church. Then we're interested in prayer. Then we're interested in holiness. And then we're interested in the blessing of God. Something's wrong. And this is a warning uh, unto us. And this is a repeated thing, a theme in the scripture. In Joel chapter 1 verse 2, God says, Hear this, you elders. And give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, even in the days of your fathers? See, what was getting their attention is, we've never been through anything like this before. Tell your children about it, 
Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming locust has left, the crawling locust have eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. What is God saying there? They knew all about the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the power of God, the compassion of God. But it wasn't until they had times like they had never experienced before, then God was able to get their attention. Maybe what we're going through right now is God's way of getting America's attention. Maybe even more than that, it's God's way of getting our attention because we've taken so for granted all of the things that he has done for us, we're not even appreciative of it. We just feel entitled. We're spoiled in so many ways. Maybe this will cause us to stop, to think, and to look, and hopefully our response will not be superficial. Which brings us to the next point, that God sees through mere flattery. There's so many people that all they do is they say the right things, sing the right things, and they don't really mean them, thinking that God is just going to look at their actions and God's just going to hear the, uh, the words that they say. Well, remember, God looks upon the heart. And so it says in verse 36, They flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. I wonder how many worship services, when we walk out saying that was a good service, God might look and say it was a pack of lies because you didn't mean it. You weren't really thinking about what you were doing. It was so casual. It was so thoughtless as though God's going to be moved by our flattery. He says, for their heart was not steadfast with them, nor were they faithful in his covenant. You see, that's why Psalm 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because if we just do it ourselves, it's probably going to be fake. If we just do it in a casual, superficial way, we'll be like the whitewashed tombs that Jesus talked about, clean on the outside but rotten and dirty and smelly on the inside. God works upon the heart from the inside out. That's where sanctification takes place. These people were content with just the surface, just going through the motions. Okay, okay, we're in a tragedy and people are dying. Let's run to the tabernacle. Let's offer some sheep. Let's sing some songs. Let's do something religious. But that really wasn't something that was coming from their heart. They were just trying to appease God with those things so that somehow they could get the bad luck or the bad karma off of them and get back to normal. That's the one thing we don't want to do during all of this is just try to flatter God. We want to have a steadfast heart. And if through this time of this virus and economic downturn, our hearts are turned toward God in a steadfast manner, Mission accomplished. That's your sanctification. And then God is in a place where He can really pour out blessings upon His children. The last thing that I would say out of this psalm is that God is just as merciful as He is holy. 
You know, sometimes we think about the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and we see that as being the dominant feature of God. Well, you're not reading your Bible well. Now, some people will read their Bible and all they see is lovey-dovey God, a sentimental God, a ooshy-gooshy kind of a God, and they miss the other part. But there are a lot of other people that all they see is judgment and condemnation and anger and wrath and you better watch out, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, when you read this, after everything that we've just read, why would God not just say to Israel, I'm done, forget it. I'll find another group of people. I can raise up anybody. You remember when the Pharisees said to uh, Jesus, we are sons of Abraham, and Jesus told them, God can bring up sons of Abraham from rocks if he wants to. That's not a problem for a God who is an all-powerful God. Why didn't he? Because he's just as merciful as he is holy. But he being full of compassion, even toward them, forgave their iniquity, even all of this junk we've been reading about. And he did not destroy him. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away when he would have had every right to express it. And did not stir up all his wrath. You think some of that stuff was severe? You had not seen anything yet. Because as sinners, all of us deserve the full wrath of God and the penalty of God which will be expressed in an eternity in the lake of fire. The little bit you and I have splash on us every once in a while is absolutely nothing compared to what it could be because God is just as merciful as He is holy. And He remembered that they were flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. The Bible says in Psalm 103 verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, and look at this, and abounding in mercy. You think that you've used up a lot of God's mercy? Well, you have. But you haven't even come close to exhausting it because mercy is not just something he has a little bit of. He abounds in it. You can never even run out of it. You know, love without truth is just gushy sentimentality, but love or truth without love is brutality. And the good thing is God is both. He's a loving God and He's a truthful God. He's a God who knows us and He knows the good as well as the bad. And this is also a God who tells the truth. He's not just brutal. He's not just mean. He's not just angry all the time. In fact, he poured his anger toward you and your sin out on his own son. But he also is a God that tells the truth and he convicts. And he brings things about in our lives to make us more like Christ. Let's not waste these times. These times are the times for us to show our children the truth of God, the provision of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. But in that, let's also show them the holiness of God the justice of God, and the wrath of God. And as we look at all of this, let us see the gospel, that we as sinners who deserve to die and spend an eternity in hell have been favored by God so that by His grace, love, and mercy, He punished His own Son 
instead of punishing us and now gives us his son's perfection and righteousness to our account and our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. That's why you and I need a savior because we're no better than these people. We're no better than anybody else on the earth today. And there but for the grace of God go I, we might say. But thanks be to God for his grace. Because of this, you and I know the mercy and the compassion of God and the goodness of God leads us to repentance. May it be so. And may God bless you this week, keep you strong and healthy. I'm praying for you not only about the virus, but even about your jobs. May the Lord bless and provide, take care and use us as an example of how the people of God are so blessed by Him. Thank you so much. God bless you.